Strange things are growing in our movies, TV shows, and books. There are so many weird and wonderful plants in the stories you know and love, but are they based in science or fiction? In each episode, we dive into the botany hidden in our favorite stories. We find out what's real and what's fantasy with help from the experts here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And this is Botanical Mystery Tour. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. That line from Romeo and Juliet is one of Shakespeare's most famous references to our favorite topic, plants. Shakespeare was an avid gardener, and he used many botanical references in his works. Some fans have even planted whole gardens based on Juliet's rose or Ophelia's bouquet. Here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, you can walk through Shakespeare's time when you visit the English Walled Garden and English Oak Meadow. The task of preserving the traditional English elements in these gardens falls to senior horticulturist Heather Sherwood, who also maintains a number of other areas at the garden. We caught up with Heather to find out just how Shakespearean our gardens really are. Welcome, Heather. Hello. So let's talk English gardens. What makes the English walled garden a traditional English garden, something that Shakespeare might have drawn his inspiration from in some of his works? The walls. First and foremost, (laughs) it's as simple as that. It is an enclosed structure, so there's no roof on it. But think of all the castles back in the 16th centuries. They all had large walls, and that is something that's very traditional in English types of gardens and history. Um, And then the hedgeways as well. Again, very English. Usually you see them going down the roads in towns and in cities. Um, and then windows and walkthroughs are very English, and the different styles of each area of the six different rooms kind of represents different time periods throughout English history, which goes on for a long time. So what are the six different rooms that we have at, in our English walled garden? We have the daisy garden, the vista garden, the cottage garden, the checkerboard garden, the pergola garden, and the border garden. Can you tell us a little bit about each of those? Yeah. My favorite, definitely the perennial bed border. Not necessarily inside the walled garden, but it is the western expanse, and it is exactly what it explains it. It's a big perennial bed with cut flowers and things that you can bring inside. And if somebody just needs all of a sudden to feel better and on a sad day you can give them a peony out of the garden, it has its backbones in um, simple shrubs like boxwood and taxis. Um, And then I have a couple of trees in there like magnolias, but they're all smaller trees to stay within the stature of the walls. I have to admit, I think of, I don't know if we're supposed to have favorites at the garden, but, (laughs) but I just, I really love the English garden because, or the walled garden, because it, it feels so private and intimate and peaceful. And I think it has to do with the walls. It does. I think it does. Cause, uh, like the courtyard garden. It's very tiny. Yeah. I might have missed that the first time. Um, <laughs> but the courtyard garden is very intimate in this sense. It is the smallest space in the garden. It's mostly planted in white or white and green plants um, to give it a simple texture up against a backdrop of a yew hedge on one side and a brick wall and the fountain is right in front and a, almost a window, if you will, is uh, done out of the brickwork where the brick just changes angles by 45 degrees and it gives you a nice textured window effect. Um, The designer of English Wall Garden wanted water everywhere. John Brooks uh, designed the garden and we have 
four major water features throughout the garden, and my favorite one is the trough that is in the courtyard garden. Um, it's small and intimate, and just the sense of relaxation as you just gently hear water bubbling, it brings it back to the intimacy in a small room. It's one of my favorites. So you mentioned one of the spaces is a cottage garden, which has its roots in the kind of garden that Shakespeare might have had back in the day. How? So tell us about that specific space and what a cottage garden actually means. Cottage gardens are traditional friends' gardens, or that's kind of maybe the American term, because it's all about sharing. Back in um, the Shakespearean time, it was sharing fruits and vegetables. Today's time period, it's like, hey, you're my neighbor. This plant works really, really well for me. I can give you a three-inch little cutting off of it, and it'll be great. And then all of a sudden, you'll have that plant too. Oh, and you can grow sweet peas up and through it and everything. And so it's the mixture of a lot of different things. Um, and being neighborly and sharing it with your neighbor, that's how traditional cottage gardens started. Um, and it has its roots in uh, the medieval time periods where cottage gardens were grown inside of walls. And um, they were mixed then with the cut flowers as well, because you always had to have a couple cut flowers yeah. like Aquilegia um, in there in springtime. I digress quickly, so sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> so the cottage gardens were informal and they were essentially... Uh, grown to provide food for the family, right? To provide food for the family is one element of it, but you always had to pesky little chickens that would run around in Shakespearean times, and so you'd have to have a, a plant right next to it that the chicken wouldn't want to go into and eat the plant you're actually trying to grow for food, like beans, say, or sugar snap peas. Um, so if you mixed in something that had a little bit more smell, like alliums, um, which are traditional onions, and they're absolutely beautiful, but alliums as the ornamental flower that we have in the gardens today is not necessarily the one you want to eat for cooking. Um, so we maybe ornamentalized it a little bit. There's got to be a better word than that. Uh, <laughs> ornamentalized. We, we've grown plants to make them prettier for a bigger reason, not necessarily for the food aspect of it. Um, traditional cottage gardens also include things on top of each other. So we have a wonderful little rose arbor and mixed within that rose arbor, we have clematis vines growing up with it. So while the roses are kind of blooming up and above you, you have these beautiful shade loving vines that light up right at your eye level. Um, the roses that we have in there are, are Virgosa roses and they're super cool because they get hips in the fall and the winter that turn bright red and they're gigantic and the birds eat them a little bit but they stay persistent throughout the winter. So when the roses are in bloom, that's great but I also grow sugar snap peas up within the rose bushes because the plant needs support to grow on and it's the mixture or the combination of those two. You'll also find some of the walls, um, the taxis or the U walls in there. I have climbing roses kind of growing through them so that the roses is coming out and it's actually supported by the hedge itself. So um, traditional cottage gardening is a combination of many different aspects of it and that's why I love it. And the idea behind sharing things um, and the movement of plants especially in the medieval time periods, that was a big thing as well because oranges were just coming over and becoming popular um, and specialty fruits like pomegranates and lemons that used to be only for you know, the wealthy and the upper middle class now was becoming more commonplace. Um, and that, that's one thing I love. So do you fall back on these like historical references to pick the actual plants that you have in the garden? Like how do you decide we're going to have sugar snap peas next to roses? And like how does that work? Um, the decision is always made um, by a committee. I 
make uh, designs up every single year and I get pictures together and I think, and I tell everyone, this would look really nice. But we also have a consultant designer that comes in okay. and helps with the garden itself um, and says, you know, we should make this area look a little bit more vibrant. I think this should be done. Um, and uh, so that's a new thing for us this year. Um, and it's it's working out pretty well. I am very excited for some of the new things that are coming. The theater within the English Wall Garden will be for 2019. Yeah. So talking about theaters and Shakespeare, we are going to yeah. add a... Any globe elements? Globe elements? Like the, like the globe the theater? Globe theater. Oh, sorry. I was not going in that direction at all. Um, it's more traditionally will look like, um, I guess, a bookcase, but have paintings or a little bit oh, of ornamentation. So it'll have three shelves on it, and we're going to portray different types of plants that, A, are very English, and, B, there will be 15 type of uh Muscari to start off the season, and then we're going to switch to geraniums, but really cool geraniums. Maybe they're miniature, um, maybe some hostas and echeverias for the fall. So that's one thing um, in the near future that are coming up. And uh, we're ordering more new containers, but it's hard to make a brand new container look old. Do you try to make everything in there kind of look like it's been not brand new, like yes. traditional? It's like been there for a while. Absolutely. The, um, because no English garden is brand new, you know, <laughs> from an English standpoint. Uh, How do you do that? How do you, like, make it look? We, um, <laughs> that, that might be a question for the carpenters, right? Or do you guys have any? We, we did it. I, um, I took the muck on the edge of the pond and I rubbed it on the uh, $25,000. <laughs> yeah, I see. that's what I was okay. like. I don't know if I want to admit to this. I'm sorry. That, that works. Cool. It did. It aged it extremely well. And then I took a high power hose after it kind of congealed and hardened onto it. And I power washed it off. Um, and it left the really nice lines in it. And it made it look like it was 100 years old, even though it just came off the truck yesterday. Even though it was just pond scum. <laughs> Yeah, it's come to work wonders. <laughs> so it's not, you know, I don't. It's a little hard to tell people that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but there is a traditional buttermilk and moss. So again, going back to the edge of the pond, if you will, moss is growing, um, and you can put that into a blender, and that actually grows algae and moss and ages containers much faster. But if you want to do it like that and not ruin a blender, <laughs> well, we have scientists that study moss. So yes. moss is plant life and it's important it so we're not trying to knock moss here no definitely okay, not uh, I, I i appreciate moss half of the moss that's grown in english wall garden does migrate to the japanese islands for their moss garden so okay. um, you know i'm a small production facility as well on the <laughs> moss end of life <laughs> so we were talking before about the cottage gardens and how it was kind of like a neighborly thing you grew stuff and you shared and you kind of swapped that reminds me of community gardening how it's like a big thing now to like you have your little plot grown, and you organic farming, farm to table, eat, eat local, yeah. all that stuff. And it's, I, we feel like Shakespeare might have thought that was like silly. Like, of course you eat local. Like, yeah, you get stuff out of your garden. Like, yeah. Do you feel like that, like people are looking to how we used to do things to just like, cause it was just practical and it makes sense. And like, we're going to keep kind of going back to the it, past to do those stuff now. I was, I, it's a lot, a little bit of both um, in the sense that, yeah. If we learn about our past, we can know what moves forwards and works really well for different um, types of gardening. And definitely cottage garden never went out of style. It's just people started thinking about it in a different way. Um, also, the space aspect of it 
English Wild Garden is not a very large garden when you think of all the 26 gardens that we have here. It's one of the smaller ones. And so if you're thinking about an urban area, it's really easy to grow a tomato on a balcony nowadays. And so you might not have a backyard, but you have a balcony to try different things. And like growing parsley, not necessarily to eat it because... I don't like the taste of parsley personally, (laughs) but because it's a pollinator. So it's hitting on a couple key things. Um, Pollinators are very important to us, and it's kind of fulfilling uh, the sphere of the way people are thinking about more community-organized adventures. Um, And locally grown, in my opinion, is great. You take out all the transportation on it. And if you have too many tomatoes, everybody loves tomato sauce, you know? Yeah. And so you can teach yourself uh, a new aspect of things. I've... I don't like tomatoes. I'm a gardener, though, by trade, and I have to grow them at my house, you know, in the English wall garden. We have a couple tomatoes just because it is that traditional. And at home, I've taught myself how to actually make them into spaghetti sauce. My kids won't eat it, but it works, you know? <laughs> like, um, So I've even taught myself different things that I didn't think I was good at just because I, am, I have the space available to it. To do that, yeah. And I think all three of us live in the city. And all three of us grow plants at our house. It's possible. It's not just because you you have a balcony and that's all your space that you can't do it. Right. You make use of what you have. And trial and error. Back in the day, um, in Shakespearean times, that's how most things were learned anyways, is trial and error. Thankfully, we do have garden centers that can help point us in the right direction, or yeah. our website, of course, too, is very helpful for that. They didn't have plain information back then. That would have been really helpful. Oh, they didn't get that memo either, did yeah, they? Yes, side note, if anyone listening to this has a plant question... We have a plant information service that can uh, identify plants for you, tell you what's going on with your plants. We have all that online. It's fantastic. And they work very very well. Yeah. They're very knowledgeable. So if you wanted to grow a Shakespeare-themed garden or or a cottage garden of your own, what would that look like? Where would you start? I would definitely choose a sunnier location if possible, just to keep it simple on that. Um, And then the favorite parts of all of his sonnets, like pansies, were always mentioned. They do very well here. You can easily grow them by seed. They're edible. So it's adding in that edible context again. Aquilegia, uh, common columbine, again, easily grown, looks great. Just finished flowering right now. Um, It can take eastern exposures. And if you're living in an urban area where... A lot of times you only have one or two ways that you get sunshine from. It's a great plant that can take a little bit more shade and is very traditional in the Shakespearean theme uh, plants. What else are Shakespearean plants? I'm drawing a complete blank. I'm sorry. I always think of the Shakespeare plays that are really dark and the ones that have like poison and stuff. So like when I was- Belladonna. When I was looking up, yeah, when I was looking at references, I was like, Belladonna, Hemlock Hemlock. is like in a bunch of his tragedies and his like crazy- like sad stories because <laughs> that's apparently what everyone used to poison each other with. Yeah, I was going to say Detura, Belladonna, that entire family of plants. Yeah, that's I think has all of the top ten killers in it of plant <laughs> materials. Um, and we do have uh, a type of Detura. It's also in the Belladonna family, and it's right next to English Wall Garden, and it's actually in our. Uh, it's in some containers that we have this year going in relation to the color theme or the color wheel, mm-hmm. and it's red, white, and blue. So very patriotic. It's planned that way because yeah. it looks great right now, and it's almost Fourth of July. So, <laughs> well, when people listen to this, it'll be way past oh yeah. summertime, so unfortunately. But <laughs> hopefully, they would have come in the summer and seen it, and then listened to this after the fact. Is there anything about the English style that you find inspirational, or you draw from in your own gardening? 
I love pollarding and I love espaliers. Espaliers were created um, probably the 15th, 16th century time period because of all those brick walls. They figured, the English figured out that they could grow specialty fruits like oranges and apples that traditionally would get frosted off before they would ripen up, but the ones that were facing south or the ones facing west all survived because it gave it that little microclimate, just enough um, from the sun beating on the bricks to keep it a little bit warmer so the fruit would ripen earlier in the fall and the flowers would open earlier in the springtime, giving you a much longer growing season to produce fruit. Also, they kept, um, they kept everything kind of within walls, which I really kind of like living in a big urban area, if something's too gigantic, it takes over the landscape, but keeping things within scale is really important for me. Also, I can pick all the fruit that way. Um, pollarding trees, I absolutely love. People don't necessarily know what it is, but it's- yeah, what does cutting, that mean? It is cutting a mature tree down to the ground and doing it year after year after year. It's traditionally done on willow trees, and if you think about willow trees, those suckers grow like 12 feet a yeah. year. If you're in an area that doesn't have a lot of forest, but you need wood to burn things or timbers to build things, something that grows 12 feet a year and you cut down every single year, well, that's, you know, recyclable. So we have two majorly uh, pollarded trees, um, one willow and one purple catalpa tree. And the purple catalpa has these massively big leaves. Um, they're probably two feet in diameter and lusciously dark purple. It is a catalpa tree and it should flower, but because I do cut it down every single year, it does not. Um, but the texture of it in the garden is phenomenal. And I have a little trick, we have grapes planted right behind where the catalpa is and the catalpa grows so quickly, it is actually very weakly attached in there. So if we have a big storm come through, usually I do will lose a branch or two or the, the plant just gets so big it takes over the pathways and you gotta have people to move around in there but the grapes grow through the catalpa as it's growing, so it actually supports the catalpa branches so they don't blow down as quickly or easily in the wind. And right now, the two are melding and blending together perfectly, in my opinion. And I'm very excited about that. So those are a couple of the things that I love about the English garden that I totally use at home and outside and I highly recommend. So you were talking about like when we have weather come through, some of the stuff's affected. We have a different climate than England does. So like, how do we... Um, adapt to our more like extreme winters. Like we get much colder, we, you know, it's not exactly the same landscape, but. No, it's not. Uh, there are one to two zones warmer than I are, and I do get a lot of zone envy out of that. And uh, <laughs> Zone envy, that's a new, that's a new thing I've yeah. never heard before. I, it, every time I go back to D.C. or any place south, it's like, oh, it's, it's one degree warmer. <laughs> one zone warmer. Um, but so, yes, many of the plants that I do grow here, I do cheat. I grow them in the greenhouses, and then we plant them as annuals. Okay. We roughly do that four times a year here in the sense of spring annual planting, summer annual planting, fall annual planting, and the fourth one is bulbs in the fall time as well after usually a killing frost. Um, and so delphinium does not survive the winter. Digitalis, both very English plants, they do not survive the winters here at all. So I do grow those in the greenhouses, and then as they're flowering out, we bring them out to the gardens. Same with the gigantic echium we have, and uh, we also will have onoportum or the scotch thistle, which everyone oohs and ahs about. It's yeah. six-foot-tall plant. Thistle is mentioned in the uh, Shakespearean time period. It's fair, yeah. a very Scottish plant. It is, so yes. Yeah, definitely something that Shakespeare wrote about a lot. And uh, I, I love to hate that plant because the thorns on it just feel like mosquito bites <laughs> when they stab into you. And it's always the hottest day that I have to plant those. So it's like I want to wear a T-shirt, but I have a sweatshirt on. <laughs> 
So, the, yeah, the scotch thistle, which in the summertime is really big and tall. We see that here in Illinois, but like as a weed, but it's a national plant in Scotland, like. Is it a different? Is it a different one than we? It's a different see variety. Here? So Got it's it. Onaportum, um, and other thistles are Onaportum, but they do not have that beautiful silky silver color. The other ones are plain green, grow you know two feet a day, yeah. and I don't like those either. <laughs> right now they're just about hitting six feet tall. <laughs> so um, you're a gardening expert, not a Shakespeare expert, but do you have any like Shakespeare references that you uh, you particularly? Are fond of? My best friend's going to kill me because she teaches all about Shakespeare. And I just, <laughs> I don't know any references besides he uses Aqualesia and the Belladonna is great, um, yeah. that reference, but I can't even yeah. quote any. I'm sorry. Well, we started sorry. the episode talking about Romeo and Juliet, and I'm pretty sure Belladonna is what, the, kills? Is what they use at the end to both uh, commit suicide together yeah. very tragically. And I do have to say, I like more, I guess, the, the happier things when he's talking about pansies, yes. you know, and having their faces on them. So definitely that. So you're more of a Shakespeare comedy yes. person than Not a tragedy. The, no. Got it. Yeah. Sorry, I like, I like the dark stuff. The seed pods off the Datura are phenomenal. Same with the Belladonna. Oof, they're fabulous. Like, I wouldn't let children play with them because they look like <laughs> porcupines, spherical. So. But they're cool to look at. They are really cool, and they have gigantic <laughs> seeds, but just don't eat them. Okay. <laughs> we did have, like, one of the coolest things that I love to boast about the garden is my royalty row, which is right next to, it kind of combines the English oak meadow and the English wall garden, and it's very silly of me, but it is right underneath the Princess Margaret tree that she dedicated, yeah. which was really cool, because she came and dedicated the garden when it opened in 91. And then right next to that, I have the Princess Diana Clematis on one end of the bed, and she is blooming her little head off right now, and she's fabulous. Underneath her feet is um, a Pelargoni, uh, Polygonum Prince Charming. I have a Hosta Andrew, and the, and the other end of the bed, um, I do have a Clematis, you know, Prince Charles, but Diana is so much prettier on the other end. <laughs> oh, I separated yeah. those two <laughs> yeah, so that they weren't them. right next to each other, <laughs> um, and I lovingly refer to that as my royalty row. So when I find plants that have traditional English names, especially with the royalty yeah. aspect, I like to add them into that area. Um, so we should be that. looking for, like, the royal babies, if there's any, like, English Charlotte, plants. anything named Charlotte, okay. I'm pretty sure I can find and plant there. Um, and that is the namesake, you know, area. It's the royalty row. It's a very small garden, so I don't know how many more plants I can get in there. But, <laughs> but it's a fun space. I it like that. It is. Royalty row. Some of, uh, I love the mixture that we do of wisteria and ipomea, or the ipomea is morning glory vines. They come out usually at the end of August, and wisteria here traditionally blooms end of May, beginning of June, and then in August, the morning glories take over, and it just transpires it all into a neon blue heaven, and it's called heavenly blue morning glory, and that's one of my favorite things later in the season. Um, How long does that last? Would people be able to see that in the fall? or Up just... until frost, so... Okay. Traditionally, a uh, killing frost will make all the hostas lie down. And when the hostas lie down, they start to smell bad. And then we clean them up, and everything looks really nice and pretty and kind of put to bed for winter. And as a horticulturist, I want that in October, like, 20th. And if I don't get it by the 31st, I'm like, well, we got to go, man. I, you know, I need the soil temperature to drop a couple more degrees. I need to shove some tulips in the ground. You know, that's – yeah. I have the itch by the 15th of October of – cutting things back and putting it to bed for I, winter. I think there's, like, a misconception that people think, like, 
oh, you must not do anything in the winter. And then spring happens and everything's busy. Yeah, what do you, you guys, guys do in the winter? All all year you're you're doing something. Yeah, so we, uh, the horticultural staff absolutely helps set up Wonderland Express and the Orchid Show. And the Orchid Show is just dreamy. It's my favorite show that we do here. And then, you know, that the other thing we're supposed to do is all that silly pruning outside. Oh, yeah. Like that pollarding type thing. And there's 37 bush, uh, trees and bushes that I have to prune on a yearly basis out there. And we do all of the snow removal here on pedestrian pathways. So if you walk on the 27 miles of pathways that we have, we keep them very clear and to the best of our ability without any ice so that people can come and visit here at all times of the year, day or night, and not break a leg. That's yeah. our main goal. Um, at, and the puddles, like we have different puddling areas, so snow removal and the safety aspect is a big portion of our winter that we do here. Uh, but... Yeah, the end of the beginning of January for the setup for the orchid show is quite a great deal of fun. Japanese islands, that's when they get 95% of their work done is they prune all of those trees out there. When it's below 7 degrees, it gets painful. <laughs> below 7. I would have put it a lot a lot uh, warmer than that when it gets painful, but below 7, okay. Yeah, I can I can we can take it, you know. We uh most of us have a change of clothes in here because the professionals. Yeah. We gotta change your clothes because if you start to sweat, you start to freeze once you slow down. And that's just a big no-no on the physical end of life. Um, and so slow and steady is the way to go so that nobody gets hurt and everybody gets the job done nicely. I have to say after a snowfall is one of the most beautiful times to walk through the garden. Um, obviously nothing is blooming, everything's covered in snow, but it's, you know, you have the English walled garden with snow on the walls and then the Japanese garden has, you know, the specific pruning that they do to catch the snow in certain ways. It's so, it's so beautiful. It is. Garden winter is very special. Everyone should come. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it. Shakespeare was a genius, and the plants he loved are all still around. Thanks for listening. Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. You can find us at botanicalmysterytour.com or on your favorite podcast apps. And if you're in the Chicago area, come and visit the garden. You can find out more about everything happening at the garden and what's currently in bloom at www.chicagobotanic.org. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And thank you for coming with us on a Botanical Mystery Tour. Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. Any reference to specific pop culture media does not constitute or imply an endorsement by the Chicago Botanic Garden. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Chicago Botanic Garden.